All right, time for the first scripture. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the 10th chapter of the letter of Paul to the Romans, found on page 150 in the New Testament um, in your Bible, if you have pew Bible, if you'd like to join me while I read. So Romans 10, 8 through 13. The word is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in your heart and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For no one believes with the heart and so is justified and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord for all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. May God bless the hearing and the reading of his word.
Terrific. Thank you. Disconnect this microphone because occasionally I gesture and whack things. That's why my wife makes me use plastic glassware at the dinner table. My wine served in a sippy cup. Gospel this morning is the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, the temptation of Jesus. This occurs immediately after his baptism. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where, for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, guess what? He was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone (laughs) to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Temptations come, O Lord, and you have granted to us your spirit that through temptation we may endure and even in failure we may find grace. Let us then hear your word the response to every temptation that reminds us of what is important, truly important, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So once again we embark on the season of Lent. It's an ancient tradition that goes all the way back to the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. We don't have any original attendees of the Council of Nicaea anymore. It was an attempt by the church leaders at the time to kind of regularize the practice of Christianity throughout the world. And so they decided that before the celebration of Easter, which was designated as the first Sunday after the first full moon after the Paschal Equinox, that's why you always have to check the calendar. There's no way to figure that out in your head. They figured from that date for Easter, they would back up 40 days and create a period, 40 days of penance to cultivate our hearts for the glorious seed of the resurrection. Why, why 40 days? Well, it's a, it's a biblical day of the observance of penance. It rained for 40 days and 40, 40 nights while uh, Noah bobbed around in the water there. When Moses received the law, he went up to Mount Sinai, and he was there 40 days and 40 nights 
on the top of Mount Sinai before God came and delivered to him the law. The children wandered in the wilderness after leaving Egypt for 40 years. Again, that big 4-0. Jonah, after being belched out of the belly of the great fish, went to the city of Nineveh, and he preached in Nineveh for 40 days. More obscurely in Ezekiel 4.6, and I need to tell you that just about everything in Ezekiel is obscure, Ezekiel rested on his side, his right side, for 40 days to talk about the evil of the nation of Judah. I don't have any idea what that was about, but it was 40 days that Ezekiel decided to rest there. The prophet Elijah, after his mentor Elisha had been caught up in the clouds on that great low-swinging chariot, Elijah went and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he began his public ministry. And, of course, this being Lent, Jesus fasted for 40 days before he began to go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel. So we link this 40-something period as a period of preparation. The good folks of Nicaea decided it would be a great way for Christians to cultivate and to think about their penance so they were better able to receive the glorious news that he has risen indeed, which we will do in a little more than 40 days. Starts with Ash Wednesday, and I say a little more because if you go to the calendar and count from Ash Wednesday to Easter, there are actually 45 days. 45 days. Every Sunday, however, is considered a celebration of the resurrection. So you take 45 days and subtract five Sundays and you have, oh, I don't always want to see the right hands. 45 minus 5 is, that's right, 40. And that's how we have the 40 days of Lent. You're not really supposed to celebrate Lent on Sunday itself. So you're going to have a Hershey bar and go back to your penance tomorrow. Those guys in Nicaea thought of everything. Um, actually, there are many ways that you can go back and research the Council of Nicaea and realize they had way too much time on their hands and thought of things that uh, maybe don't even matter. But that's another conversation for another day. Anyway, here we're here once again at the beginning of Lent, awaiting the grand news that Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. And as happens every year, the first text on the Sunday in Lent is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We come around every year to this passage. The temptations that fell befell Jesus by the great Diabolus, the great diabolical one. Diabolical, diabolos is the Greek name for the devil. Uh, de devil is in, as in cruella. Now, I've, I've mentioned before that the word diabolos has that built in it the sense of, of to divide, to chop, to mince up, like in deviled eggs or deviled ham. Same root of the word. And the notion is, is that the devil chops things into little bits so that its wholeness, its purpose, its context is lost. We're just going to take this little bit here and we're going to focus on that. And that's what the devil does to Jesus. No attention to the big picture. We're just going to zero in on this little tempting moment for Jesus. You're hungry, he says. Ah, you've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. You have the power to turn stone into bread. Why not do it and have something good to eat? 
your concerns of the world, you know, the world does belong to me. If you bow down and worship me, I'll be more than happy to turn it over to you. You're embarking on a ministry and you want to know how to start with a splash? You want to get the attention of the people in Jerusalem? I've got an idea. How about if you jump off the temple and end up floating on angels' wings down to the center court? That'll grab their attention. It's frequently the root of sin. Focusing on just one little narrow reality of hunger or popularity or desire and dismissing the larger context, not even thinking about how that behavior may affect another. If we take that out of the equation, we can justify almost anything. That's frequently the way in which sin begins, and temptation is don't think about everybody else, just think about what's bugging you now. That's the sort of key of Jesus' responses to old diabolos. Jesus responds in every instance, not only using Scripture, but by telescoping out and saying, sorry, devil, the big picture matters too. Yes, I'm hungry, but man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yes, I know I want to be able to embrace the world but it's not about my popularity. It's about embracing them to worship God alone, not you. Yes, it's not about our reckless immediate desire. It's about our consistent dependence upon God's care. It's easy to notice that every temptation provided by Mr. Dicetam references Scripture. Curiously enough, even the devil can use the Bible to justify any one of his temptations. But in every instance, Jesus backs out from the narrow interpretation to the greater purpose of the meanings behind the texts. I think on a global stage, we are currently witnessing this kind of devilish logic, justifying, I would suggest, a demonic use of force to inflict on a people a very narrow and immediate worldview it's justified by a very myopic picture of destiny. Yes, in the mid-ninth century, there were a group of Vikings who called themselves Rus. They established control over the Slavs, living in what is now central Ukraine and northwestern Russia. They made Kiev their capital. Moscow would not even be established for another couple of centuries. And when it was, it was just a minor settlement uh, on the outskirts of Yugoslavia, of Ukraine. Um, it was an ignored peace, and the local Slavs who came along and descended from those Viking settlers called themselves Russians, after the Viking Rus, a name that in some parts of Ukraine survived well into the 20th century. Today, the East Slavic nations of Ukraine and Belarus and Russia at that time claimed Kiev as their heritage. Although the ancient Rus heartland was the capital, Kiev now encompassed modern Ukraine. So if you want to say, is Ukraine part of Russia, or is Russia part of Ukraine, it depends upon when you start the story. Because Russia didn't even exist when Ukraine was actually the empire under good King Olag. Where do you start the story? How far do you telescope out? 
at some point we find ourselves back in the Garden of Eden and we're all kin to begin with. It's the same slice and dice argument that you hear all of the time with the uh, what aboutism. What aboutism? Yeah, well, I did that, but what about you? What about that? Similar violent colonialism has been perpetrated on all angles of the planet. Uh, consider what's been done in the name of our own Monroe Doctrine. Aggression can be justified on the grounds of past offense. That is one of the great temptations, especially brought to light in the season of Lent. On the simplest level, a child giving up candy for the season of Lent in self-denial can say, Freddie had candy yesterday, so why don't I get my candy today? What about him? Can I have candy today? Or it's one of the ways that you're dealing with a pathological narcissist. They justify their bad behavior by saying, well, nobody's perfect. Sure, I did this thing over here, but what about that thing over there? As soon as the finger is taken away from them and they can point to the rest of the world, then all of a sudden their own destructive behavior is justified as if given to them by Diabolus himself. It's a narrowing the season of penance into a reflective moment and forgetting the purpose of this season. I remember a few years back I had a couple in my office at the counseling center and they told me that their problem was money. And in reality, that was the expression of the problem. The problem wasn't money. The problem was their own impulsive consumption. Fact of the matter is, they were both rather successful professionals, and there was plenty of money coming into the household for them to live pretty decent lives. The problem was is that, that money was going to non-necessary items instead of the stuff that had to be taken care of. And their justification of immediate gratification is always based on, well, you bought that, so I get to buy this, right? The particular instance that drove them to my office was the fact that both of their brand new vehicles had been repossessed. Uh, they lived with divided finances. She paid the electric bill, he paid the gas bill, she paid this, but the groceries, he paid the rent. And they divided everything up, and the car payment was his responsibility. He hadn't made the car payment. Instead of making the car payment for the last couple of months, he had taken the money that would have gone to securing their vehicles so they could do things like, I don't know, go to work, um, and spent it on an amazing home theater system. He quickly pointed out that she loved watching movies, and so he really did it for her. He also pointed out that she was spending a couple of hundred bucks every month to get her hair and nails done, and if she could indulge for her hair and nails, certainly he deserved a reclining movie-watching seat with a cup holder and vibrating back. She, on the other hand, pointed out that he was so irresponsible that the needs of the household were not being taken care of. Let's keep in mind that the cars were repoed. He responded, yeah, but you know what? The cars were repoed, but she still paid the insurance. How stupid is that? I didn't know where to go from there. <laughs> I, I, I tried to say, yeah, but it didn't work. It wasn't too long after that that they were actually evicted from their luxury apartment. 
She went and moved in with family. He moved in with a friend, and it was only a few months after that that they had filed for divorce, which was largely uncontested. Both of them came back into my office individually, but what they wanted me to do was to assure them that they had been right through the whole process, and it was their ex that had brought down the marriage. And when I didn't support that worldview, they canceled the remainder of their appointments. Good thing that we were free. <laughs> it's easy for me to poke fun at short-sightedness of others. But I have to confess that I've often justified my own bad behavior, arguing that somebody else had done something just as bad. The point of Lent is not trying to prove that we can make it through, tough it out during 40 days, like we've you've batted a 1,000, or we've ro rolled a, a 300 bowling game, or, or got a hole in one, or shot you know, under par. Lent is not about our ability to tough it out so that somehow we can be rewarded with the celebration of Easter, the good news of the resurrection. The point of Lent is to establish in our hearts our personal, absolute dependence upon God that saves us in all weakness. In the devil's eyes, weakness is a reason for shame. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve ate of the fruit they weren't supposed to. Immediately what happened? They realized they were naked. They went over and covered themselves with leaves. So when God came to commune with them in the garden, they were embarrassed. We realized that we were naked and suddenly we were ashamed. And God said, well, who pointed that out to you? No, they suddenly had done wrong and shame was the next step. They had expressed weakness. But when God asked each of them whether or not they had eaten of the fruit, their immediate response was, yeah, but what about? Adam, did you eat of the fruit? Well, you know, what about women? You know, you know how come you're not picking on her? It's my wife, it was her idea. You made her. The wife? Did you eat of the fruit? Well, you know, snake, 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 snake. The deflection of responsibility, it's not a simple, yes, I did that and I need to confess that. It is, what about ism? What about what she did? What about what the snake did? What about what you did in creating this garden? If you wouldn't have put that tree there, we wouldn't have made the mistake, right? And so all of a sudden, the justification of bad behavior does not bring Adam and Eve, or I would suggest even us, to the position of saying, yeah, I did that. How can I respond? I believe that if Adam or Eve would have said to God at that moment, you're right, I did. I was wrong. They would have discovered something that we have already learned, and that is that God is gracious and forgives those who repent and diligently seek. But because they were incapable of taking responsibility for what they were done, they were incapable of hearing a word of grace. They deflected, and so they missed the opportunity for God's forgiveness. What does Scripture say in the passage that John read to us? No one who believes in Jesus will be put to shame. No one who believes in Jesus will be put to shame, regardless of whether their Lenten penance was a success or a series of cycled failures. 
Ultimately, if it brings one to a trust in the grace of Christ, shame isn't even in the picture. The whataboutism is not what allows us to be embraced. We don't need to deflect. God will look us in the eye and not put us to shame. What does Paul say? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. May we, in the trials of Lent, may we, in the context of global events, no matter how we are tempted, may we discover the unashamed confidence of our complete reliance upon the resurrection for us and for anyone in this broken, broken world. Amen. Amen.